0: Oh, good morning. I love the thought of that song as we come into the, the reading of God's Word, the teaching of God's Word, just setting our hearts right, not, not because of the blessings we have received, abundant as they are and wonderful as they are, and, and Worthy of worship he is because of those blessings, but but much more worthy is he of our worship just because of who he is. And uh, setting our hearts right as we focus on him, his being. Dan, could you just turn me down just a little bit? Matthew 21 is where we find ourselves this morning. Verse 18 is where we will pick it up. And we won't make it all the way through this text, unfortunately. I was hoping to, but somebody said, I hear the pastor here is long-winded. Okay, well, fair enough. Matthew 21 and verse 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, "'May no fruit ever come from you again.' And the fig tree withered at once. When his disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, "'How did the fig tree wither at once?' And Jesus answered them, "'Truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, "'Be taken up and thrown into the sea,' it will happen.' And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Father, I thank you for this text, a text that has been distorted and twisted by many, a text that as we read our Bibles is so very easy to just skim over and think that it's unimportant really to, to us, to, to our lives, to, to how we live, to what you're doing in this world in redemptive history, but, Father, so wrong those thoughts are. Very important, this text. Father, I pray that you preach this to our hearts this morning. Cause it to bring deep conviction where that be needed. Cause it to bring great encouragement where that be needed as well. We pray it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord's Day... uh, we, this Lord's Day, examine this extremely important passage of Scripture. A passage of great significance in redemptive history, which speaks to us corporately, it speaks to us individually, of a a needed warning and a foundational truth for the Christian life. J.C. Ryle states of this passage... Quote, this is an incident almost without without parallel in our Lord's ministry. It is almost the only occasion on which we find him making one of his creatures suffer in order to teach a spiritual truth. There was a heart-searching lesson in the withered fig tree. It preaches a sermon we shall all do well to hear. I couldn't agree more. With Ryle's assessment of this text, needed truth is presented for us here. Let us then listen intently and let us receive the word of the Lord in its teaching. You'll recall in this study in Matthew's gospel, we last examined the cleansing of the temple found in Matthew 21. Prior to that, of course, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as he is hailed by the crowds, the son of David, Even the king of Israel, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And in these three events, the triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, and here in our text today, we see three symbolic actions. Number one, Jesus presenting himself as Israel's king and Messiah. Though he knew he was to be rejected by both the leaders of the Jews and by the masses themselves number 2 the cleansing of the temple as jesus shows the corruption of judaism and number 3 the cursing of the fig tree and its subsequent withering and we need to understand that through though these events were were literal actions and events they were each really acted out parables so to speak, teaching substantial truth to the people of God. These illustrations of much deeper truths than than lie on the surface of the events themselves. And and of course these truths clearly presented, if we pay attention to the details as recorded by the gospel writers. Mark's, Mark's gospel account also records this particular event in view today. Um, And as usual, we need to look to Mark's event because he gives us details that Matthew doesn't provide. Matthew tells us this is happening the morning after the cleansing of the temple. You'll notice in Matthew that Jesus finds no fruit on this tree. He curses it. The tree withers at once, but Mark places things in a slightly different order. Mark places, uh, and, and this is important for us. Mark, In Mark's gospel, we find that, that Jesus and his disciples, on their way to Jerusalem, they pass by this particular tree, finding no fruit on it, and he curses it. Mark 11 and verse 12, we read this. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, And seeing in the distance a a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, "May May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, so Mark tells us that Jesus entering the temple filled with righteous indignation, overturning tables uh, after this event. So on the way to Jerusalem, he sees the fig tree, he curses the fig tree according to Mark, then he goes to the temple, then he cleanses the temple. The next day is when the disciples find the tree withered. That's a different timeline. That, that, that's interesting for us. So, Jesus went to the temple. He, he saw the temple, which was supposed to have been a house of prayer, which had been turned into a den of robbers. The chief priests wanted to destroy him, but at the end of the day, Jesus and his di- disciples returned to Bethany, where they were staying, presumably with their friends, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. The next morning... Mark records verse 20 of chapter 11. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him therefore i tell you whatever you ask in prayer believe that you will have that you have received it and it will be yours and whatever and whenever you standing praying forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses mark Uh, is slightly different than Matthew. Matthew seems more concerned with what happened rather than the chronology of the events taking place. Mark sandwiching the cleansing of the temple between the cursing of the fig tree and the withering of the fig tree helps us to understand that Jesus cleansing the temple is tied to this event. And so often, in Matthew in particular, we see this pattern. We see a parable given, followed by events that illustrate that truth taught in the parable, lived out or practiced. We see this, for example, Matthew chapter 13. Jesus gives a series of parables, the first of which, the parable of the the soils, The seed sown on four different soil types, very relevant to our passage today. The word of God, sown, only produces on good soil. There, providing a fruitful harvest. But then later in, in the chapter, Jesus goes on to his hometown where he taught in a synagogue They knew him. They were amazed at his teaching. And they were deeply offended. How dare this guy, one of us, think he can teach us? I mean, who does he think he is coming here presuming that he should be able to be our teacher? You see, the parable and the parable's truth illustrated in the lives of these hard-hearted hearers. This pattern of parable followed by a a real life demonstration of the parable's truth is not uncommon, particularly in Matthew's gospel. Here in our passage, we, we see this as well. We see the cursing of the fig tree followed by the cleansing of the temple. The truth of the parable carried out in real life. Our passage say, says many commentators is a parable acted out. And so our rule for a parable is this. We are looking for one principle truth. One to pull from this text. One principle truth that Jesus is trying to convey in the teaching of this parable. James Montgomery Boyce writes this. In the Old Testament... Israel is often compared to a fig tree or a vine. And judgment on Israel is compared to its destruction. We could see this, for example, in a number of places in the Old Testament scriptures. Jeremiah chapter 8, Psalm 105, Hosea chapter 2. And most notably, a passage that probably came quickly to the minds of the disciples at this point, Micah chapter 7. Micah 7, beginning at verse 1. Woe is me, for I have become as when summer fruit has been gathered and when grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no fig, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are what is uh, their hands are on what is evil to do it well the prince and the judge asks for a bribe and the great man utters evil desires of his soul thus they have they weave it together the best of them is like a briar the most upright of them a thorn hedge the day of your watchman of your punishment has come now their confusion is at hand put no trust in a neighbor have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth for, from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. That passage is very relevant to our study today. A passage about God bringing judgment on Israel. Understand then... That the fig tree represents Israel. We we look to our passage to seek to learn what God is saying here with regards to Israel. but, But also to take lessons for what it is that God says regarding us in this text. Matthew 21 verse 18. In the morning as he was returning to the city he became hungry. We see this is taking place on the way to Jerusalem, the fig tree on the wayside. In other words, this tree is along the road. No one owns it. It's not on anyone's particular property. Some make much of the fact that Jesus is hungry with questions like, well, hold on, if he's in Bethany, staying with his friends, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, why didn't they feed him before he came? And we can speculate and we can come up with all kinds of things here, but you know, maybe he was up too early. Maybe he was in prayer. He missed breakfast when they served it. But that's not the point of the text. And we don't want to spend too much time on that. What we can see from the fact that Jesus is hungry is a, a marvelous truth for us. The truth that Jesus really was a man. He, he was flesh and blood like we are. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Skipping down to uh, verse 17 in Hebrews 2, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of God. Of the people, Listen, if Jesus didn't come, if he didn't live, if he didn't experience what we experience, if he didn't live in the same world that we live in, then, then how could he go to the cross? How could he be a sacrifice for us? How, how could he pay the price that, that we owe? We, living in this world, living under the law, how could he pay our price? And so in order to, to be our redeemer, he... Came and he really was a man. He, he paid that price owed because the price is when you sin, you die. When man sins, man dies, and only a man could pay our price. And, and, and I find it comforting to think that my Savior, he experienced the things that caused me temptation, right? He experienced hunger. He, he experienced, you know, anger. He experienced loneliness. He experienced fear and was without sin. He, he knows. He, he has compassion. He can empathize with us because he's literally walked in our shoes. That's a, an amazing truth to consider. He was a real man living in this world. Verse 19 and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. In Mark's account, he provides the little detail that this was not fig season, right? Seeing the, in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to it to see if, it, if, if he could find any, anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not season for figs. Okay, so... Listen, Jesus is a smart guy, right? I mean, he's the creator after all. And if it's not fig season, why in the world is the creator looking for figs on the fig tree? I mean, surely, if, 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 he, if all of those things are true and he knows all of those things, he would know better than to go looking for figs. Well, this being in late March early April the fig season roughly mid to late May he should know this but there's something really curious about fig trees fig trees produce figs before they produce leaves and here in both Matthew and Mark's account this fig tree has already produced a full set of leaves, full foliage of leaves. And so, of course, if there are leaves on the fig tree, there are going to be figs on the fig tree. Luke chapter 13 tells a parable about a fig tree. It's important for us to consider. Luke 13, verse 6. And he told this parable... A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking figs, seeking fruit, and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also, and I will dig around it and put on manure, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Again, we see a parable about a fig tree in which judgment is presented for us. Interesting, Jesus has at this point in our text been ministering for three years. Three years. Three years he had been looking for fruit in Judaism. And for three years, he found nothing but leaves. Charles Spurgeon says of our text and the fig tree therein, he says, It was not the time for figs, but the fig tree has this peculiarity that the fruit comes before the leaves. If, therefore, we see leaves fully developed, we naturally look for figs fit to be eaten. This tree had put forth leaves out of season when other fig trees were bare and had not begun putting forth their early figs. It, so so to speak, outran its fellows, but its premature growth was all deception. It had overleaped the needful first stage of putting forth green figs, and had rushed into a fruitless uh, verdure. It was great at wood and leaf, but worthless for fruit. Now, there's a fig tree in our illustration, but listen, this is not about a fig tree. It's an illustration, and particularly an illustration about men being fruitless, even though it might look as if they should have fruit. Even though he has the signs of a man who should produce fruit, but doesn't. And Jesus has, of course, used fruit production in reference to evidence for salvation previously. In fact, we witnessed John the Baptist speaking much the same. John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 8, John the Baptist says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And, of course, John was speaking to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, who were coming to his baptism, but they were coming from wrong heart motives. There was a heart problem in them. In Matthew uh, chapter 7, Jesus speaks of false teachers. He says in Matthew 7 and verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And so we see that fruit production that is is by the quality of of the tree by the nature of the tree bad tree bad fruit good tree good fruit fruit is but an evidence of the nature of the tree here false teaching is a bad fruit which is evidence of a bad tree we'll look at more evidence that the Bible gives of the bad fruit of hypocrisy in a moment well just as Jesus witnessed no fruit on this fig tree. Likewise, Jesus has examined the fruit of Judaism, the fruit of Israel. He has examined the fruit of her leaders, of her religion, and he has found it to be barren of anything good and pleasing. The temple turned from a house of prayer as it was meant to be into a den of robbers Jesus has been rejected by the leadership of Israel as their king. In fact, they have already devised a plan to put him to death. They're just seeking the opportunity to do so. This is the time for judgment of the nation. Boyce writes, The cursing of the fig tree was a powerful symbolic action. It is also a warning to us of how God views any religion that does not produce genuine spiritual fruit. John A. Brodus wrote, That withered fig tree stands as one of the most conspicuous objects in sacred history, an object lesson forever. So let us consider the similarities between the fig tree and Israel. The fig tree, in full leaf, advertises something to the onlooker. But it's false advertising. It says, come and take of my fruit, but it actually has produced no fruit to be taken and enjoyed. That's a great illustration by the master illustrator of the hypocrisy in religion. The case of profession without practice. And of course, this isn't something new in Jesus' day. It has been present all through Bible history. Israel has had much of this in its storyline. For example, we read of this in Jeremiah, we read of it in Isaiah, we read of it in Ezekiel. For example, last uh, two weeks ago when we looked at this passage, we referenced Jeremiah seven, where the people, they were, they were out visiting the high places. They were worshiping the, the gods that, that were not Israel's God false gods and then they would come back to the temple and they would worship the one true living god and they would say well listen we're in the temple of the lord the temple of the lord the temple of the lord we're safe we're secure like here we are and and god said no you're not secure you're not secure at all your hearts aren't right you're coming here you're you're you know carrying out the outward actions Your hearts are far, far from me. And Jeremiah pronounced on them judgment. God gave them over as a result of that to the Babylonians. Uh, Allow me to read from Isaiah chapter 1, beginning at verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evil doers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Jump down to verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Unless we misunderstand, he's actually speaking to Israel there. He's referring to them as Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, that's, that's pretty vivid imagery. He says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And we say, well, hold on, wait a minute. Like, the, the, the new moons, right? The, the, the appointed feasts, the sacrifices, the assembly, the temple worship, the offerings are not all of those the things that God has, has actually commanded Israel to partake in? I mean, how can they be an abomination? How can he so loathe those things when he has ordered the people to partake in them? And the answer, of course, is because their hearts are corrupt, It's all hypocrisy. Their hearts don't match their outward expressions. Isaiah chapter 29, familiar words quoted by our Lord Jesus to the people of Israel in his day. This people draws near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And so we see hypocrisy in religion. Jesus will not accept a show of faith with no real faith behind it. He will not accept false advertising. The Pharisees, the the teachers of the law who professed to adhere to the word of God, those in in Matthew 15 who traded the commands of God for the commands of men, Jesus calls these hypocrites. Hypocrites. Blind guides. In Matthew 23, just in the next few days, in fact, in Jesus' ministry, we will see him calling these out on that hypocrisy in very, very strong terms. In Matthew 23, verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness these you ought to have done without neglecting the others matthew 23:25 woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence you blind pharisee first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Strong words. You see, they put on a good show And we see this really consistently throughout Matthew's gospel. Matthew 7, these same, stand in the streets to pray, but only to be seen and heard by men. They take the best seats at the feasts to be esteemed. Oh, look at, oh, Brother John, he's so holy. They pray long prayers. Oh, look how close he is to God. Don't you see but it's all, Jesus says, rotten fruit. Rotten to the core. They do the right outward things, or at least some of the right outward things, but, but their hearts are rot. And oh, how careful we need to be of just making our religion all about those outward things. And listen... The church has a history, frankly, much like Israel. Often plagued with nothing but the outward show with rotten hearts. You see, listen, the Pharisees. Think about the Pharisees. They fasted, didn't they? They prayed. They tithed. They read their Bible. They, attempted the, they, they attended the, the temple worship. They offered the sacrifices. They served. In fact... To the nation, these looked like the most godly of people. While the hypocrite often does in the church as well. As we have quoted the condemnation that Jesus pronounces on the Pharisees and the scribes in Matthew 23, I, I should actually mention how that chapter ends. Matthew 23 and verse 28, Jesus says, See... Your house is left to you desolate. In other words, yeah, you go ahead, have the temple, have the temple building. You can have it. But I'm removing my spirit from it. I'm removing my presence from it, Jesus says. And that's exactly what the cursing of the fig tree is pointing to. As Jesus says to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Israel has been judged just as the fig tree has been cursed. Now, I really wanted to press on and move into the rest of this text today and the disciples' response to his teaching. And we'll get to that, Lord willing, next week. But for the remainder of today, because this is such a serious issue for us to consider, I want to look at what some of what God's word has to say about the religious hypocrite. This is serious, serious stuff. And the church is just as prone to falling into this as was Israel. And I'd also like to spend a little bit of time at the end of today with a warning about what the cursing of the fig tree absolutely does not mean. Because error is also found on that that end of the spectrum as well. First, the religious hypocrite. We saw the passage from Isaiah 29, these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. And that's exactly the issue here. You see, God doesn't look at the fruit. God knows the heart. He examines the heart. He doesn't look to the outward evidence. He knows those who are his. And he doesn't require outward evidence to judge. He, he sees the intentions of the heart. He sees, he, to put it in, a, in an illustration, he sees beyond the paint job. That paint that we throw on to try to cover the fact that it's a used car, right? That it's all rusted through. No, God sees through that. He sees through the the whitewash that we put on the tomb. He sees the dead bones within. And we'll we'll come back to this point because it's so very important that we get this right where it comes to salvation. But first, let's, let's just quickly survey the Bible for this idea of the religious hypocrite. Matthew 22 and verse 18. We see Jesus also detects the state of men's heart. Verse 17 in Matthew 22, Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Now, now wait a minute. These that Jesus says this of, they're just trying to get the answer to a biblical question. They just want some clarity, right? I mean, mean, come on, Jesus. That's a little harsh for them, isn't it? They're just wanting to get this right. No. They were testing Jesus. They were challenging him. They were being contentious towards him. So often, the case... uh, When when this happens, and and it happens in the church as well. Isaiah 9 verse 17 tells us that God has no pleasure in the hypocrite and evildoer. Job chapter 13 tells us the hypocrite could not come before the Lord. And of course that's a reference to salvation. In Matthew 23, four times, actually five, I counted as I read this morning, five times Jesus refers to these Pharisees as these hypocrites as blind guides, blind fools, or just plain simply blind. John chapter 9, on that note, Jesus heals a blind man. And there we find this statement from the Lord. John 9 verse 39 Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. You see, these were the blind that thought, spiritually speaking, that they had perfect vision. Well, that really well describes the religious hypocrite. Listen to how Isaiah 65 describes these. Isaiah 65 and verse 5, those who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, I'm too holy for you. Can you imagine that? Can you, oh, wow, don't come too close. I'm far too holy for you. I can't deal with you. I can't associate with you. No, no. Don't you understand how holy I am? How unlike the Lord Jesus Christ that is. Our Lord ate with tax collectors and sinners, with prostitutes, I mean, surely he didn't engage in their sin, but he was not too holy to allow these to draw near to himself. And he actually went beyond that. He blessed them. He ministered to them. If he was not too holy, I guarantee you we are not too holy. And so we we have much to learn here. The hypocrite, however, distances himself. And we see this in the Gospels consistently. These same hypocrites asking Jesus, why in the world would you ever eat with such sinners? The hypocrites are self-righteous. Consider the parable of the two men that prayed. The Pharisee prayed thus, Luke 18, verse 11. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Boy, he could sure see everyone else's sin as clear as day, but he was totally blind to his own. And that's hypocrisy in a nutshell, very extrospective. Right, very focused on outside of himself, and intently looking, always watching, always finding, catching others in their sins, no matter how tiny they may but may, they might be, but always completely blind to their own. And listen, this man's sin was not some little piccadillo sin. It was the sin of pride. It was the very sin of Satan. Look what this man put on, though. Let me demonstrate the leaves. This is not fruit. This is leaves. The man prayed. He fasted twice a week. That's way, way, way more than what is required by the law. Over and above. He, he attended the temple worship. He gave the sacrifices. All of the outward things he had, they were all in place in his life. He was greatly offended by other men's sinfulness, but ignorant completely to his own great sin. And in fact, he was even thankful to God for who he was in himself, in his standing before God. Be warned. This happens in the church today too. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 30. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as, my, as, as people come and They sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but will not do it. Wow! Wow, do you hear what that's saying? Uh, so these, they present themselves before the teaching of the Word of God. They present themselves as God's people. They sit before that teaching. They love to hear the preaching of the Word of God. It's like beautiful songs to their soul. They just won't do what it says. They won't do what God speaks. I fear the church in our day is filled with such as well. These are hypocrites, severely critical of others, especially others they feel whose outward demonstrations of religious practice don't quite align with their own. Look at Matthew 7 and verse 3. Why do you see the speck That is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrites. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Or or Luke chapter 13, verse 14 The ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Oh, Jesus, come on, you know better than that. Like, we don't come here to the temple, to the synagogue. We don't come to the the synagogue to to see people healed. No, we, we come here to hear teaching. We come here to sing songs. You got six days to do all of that. And that's exactly what they say. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. Not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered them, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? I fear there may be many professing believers today who would do likewise. Jesus, how dare you interrupt our worship, our singing of songs, our hearing of preaching. There are many other days that you can do those kinds of things. Well. These, the hypocrites, regard tradition more, than, more important than the word of God. Matthew chapter 15, they accuse Jesus of transgressing the traditions of the elders while they themselves ignore the very command of God. The command to take care of, to honor their parents. And it's not that they don't know, that's the thing. They're not ignorant. In Matthew 23, Jesus instructs his disciples, Matthew 23 and verse 2 The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. And so they knew, they knew how they ought to have thought and thereby lived. But instead, they just put on a religious show. And you might think that the religious hypocrite is therefore uninterested in seeing people be converted, but that's not the case at all. These, Jesus says, Matthew 23, 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. How? How? How do, they, how do they do this? Well, they preach, but all they preach is law. Law, law. It must look like this. You must act like this. You must do it this way. You must not be like that. Oh, my dear, do we ever need to be careful lest we be exactly this. This. And listen, law is our natural bent, isn't it? Every single one of us, every single time, if given the opportunity, we will lean to the law. That's exactly what we've been saved out of. And that's, this is a continual battle that we face The battle of falling into the Galatian heresy. Yes, yes, faith is important. Yes, you need to believe. But on top of that, you also need to, and I'll just leave that to you to fill in the blank. If salvation looks like that, Paul says it is another gospel. It is no gospel at all and is instead accursed. Speaking of those who fell into the Galatian heresy, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul addresses these. Chapter 5 and verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Isn't that good? No, we're, we're to be a people who boast about what's in the heart, what's God's done in the heart, not the outward things that we've put on. Those are but leaves, those are, you know, we often talk about fruit, and we think of you know reading our Bible and attending church and going to the prayer meeting, and those are leaves. Unbelievers can do all of those things. No, the fruit is what has God done in the heart. The fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness. Right? That's the fruit. And so those who boast about outward appearance. And not about what's in the heart. Whoa, do we ever need to hear that? Let us not be a people who get so focused on external things. As has already been mentioned... These, the hypocrites, focus on the minors and ignore the majors. Matthew 23, they tithe of their spice gardens, but they ignore the weightier matters of justice, mercy, faithfulness. They have a form of godliness, but deny its power, as Paul writes to the young pastor, Timothy. They clean the outside of the cup, but inside, wickedness in the heart. They are focused on receiving glory from men rather than the one-day hope of being glorified in the presence of God. They, they love preeminence, seeking the best seats in the synagogue, the best seats at the feast, the greetings in the marketplace. And listen, just because that speaks of religious leaders, you don't have to be a pastor to do likewise. There are many who seek such positions in the eyes of men. Listen to Proverbs 11, verse 9. With his mouth... The Godless man would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge the righteous are delivered. The King James aptly apply, uh, translates that the Godless man as the hypocrite in this verse. The hypocrite destroys his neighbor with his mouth. Yes, the hypocrite is, is quick to speak about others, to gossip, to slander, to tear down others in order to show themselves so godly. Peter warns us of this, and he instructs the believer, First Peter chapter two, so put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Peter warns because hypocrisy is devastating in, the Christian, in living the Christian life. It's devastating. And Peter knew, knew this all too well, didn't he? And for he himself had fallen into this very trap. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11, But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, Paul says, because he stood condemned. Condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Ah, you see, he was looking for the praise of men. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas, Peter, Like these are prominent names in the New Testament, right? I assure you, if these can fall into hypocrisy, so can I. And so can you. The problem is, the hypocrites' worship is not accepted by the Lord. As Jesus says in Matthew 6 and verse 5, that because these religious hypocrites uh, aim to impress and, and be so holy in the eyes of men and, and receive the praise of men, Jesus says, they have received their reward. In other words, they'll get that. Oh yeah, they'll get the praise of men. They'll get the accolades of men. Absolutely, attaboy, way to go, you're so holy. They just won't hear any of that from God, ever And so we have a major, major warning here. Don't fall into the ways of the religious hypocrite. And here's the thing. If you do, most often what we see in the scripture is you're completely blind to it. And so... What we need to do is we need to fall on our face before the living God and ask him, God, would you please reveal to me if there's any of this hypocrisy not out there, in here. God, am I a hypocrite? If I am, please show me. I want to know. I need to know so that I can repent of it. That's not where I want to be. Is there hypocrisy in my life? God, please open my eyes to it if there is. And, and we could go on. Like the Bible has so much to say about the hypocrites. And so we've, we've really only but scratched the surface. But I also do want to quickly touch on what the parable of the withered fig tree does not teach. Some, particularly reading Matthew's gospel, see passages like this, passages like the separation of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25, as teaching, and and listen, John Piper does this. I have been personally benefited by John Piper in many, many ways. I value him in much of his teaching, but here in a critical area, he is simply wrong in teaching the justification is by faith alone but salvation in the end when we stand before the lord to be judged is by faith and works justification is by faith says piper but final salvation is by works and we say absolutely not Absolutely not. God is not, in the end, going to examine our works to see if we are truly saved. 100% absolute error. And that is the error of Roman Catholicism, yes, but that is not what the Bible teaches. Please see here that fruit is is not a part of the requirement of salvation. That is not what the fig tree teaches. It is rather what is produced by salvation. Fruit is produced by salvation. It is not faith plus fruit that equals salvation, but rather faith equals salvation and fruit. Do not get confused here. To confuse here is to become one of the false teachers that Jesus warns of in Matthew 7. It is that serious. Fruit, obedience, change of desires, drive, direction, character is not how we are saved. It is what being saved produces and we must not, we must never ever inject these into what a person requires in order to be saved. Here, just to give a few examples, we would find the errors, for example, of the new perspective on Paul and federal vision theologies. This helps us to understand why proponents of these theological positions agree that faith and works where salvation is concerned are not in opposition to one another. That grace and law are not in opposition to one another. Both have ventured down the path of the justification that Rome teaches, inserting faithfulness and works of obedience into the very definition of faith itself. And interesting, these seem to agree that those holding to the teachings of Rome with regards to justification, those embracing the salvation of the false gospel of Rome, can be saved, both very much in error. By the way, that error is not a minor thing that we can agree to disagree on. It is, in fact, the very error that caused the Protestant Reformation. It is a big deal. And so, no. To to quote, we deny That faith alone means that the fruits that accompany our faith such as works of love or faith in its faithfulness or faith in its non-meritorious workings or any other kinds of works are included in the definition and instrumentality of justifying faith to use the words of the Mid-America Reformed Seminary's doctrinal treatment regarding the errors of Federal Vision theology in May of 2007. Or, as the OPC saw these same errors in these theological positions, citing Federal Vision as including works by use of faithfulness and obedience in its very definition of faith. Seven ecclesiastical bodies have convened councils to study these positions and have all condemned these as not just wrong, as heretical positions. These did immense amounts of scriptural study. Isolated groups in study all coming to the very same conclusions these are serious, serious errors. In fact, according to Martin Luther and John Calvin, getting these wrong, the truth of justification places one outside of the church. The fig tree does not teach that God is one day to examine the fruit to see if you have what it takes to gain entry to heaven. No. Galatians 2 Verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we see works of the law, faith in Jesus Christ, are in fact where salvation is concerned in opposition to one another. Yes, yes, proponents of federal vision, proponents of the new perspective are wrong, 100%, wrong, Yes, and so, we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith alone in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. Yes, justification is by faith alone, and alone actually does mean alone, And, to be justified, is to have already been examined, to have already stood in the courtroom, to have already been judged where salvation is concerned, and to have already been found in the eyes of the court to be just, to be right, without blemish. And, of course, we know this is not by our own doings. It is by works, just not our works. It's by the works of Jesus Christ and him alone credited to our account. Faith is the sole instrument through which God communicates salvation to his people. There is no trial to come for the believer where salvation is to be determined. That's already done. Already happened. We will give an account, yes, but not to see if we're saved. Salvation is not a reward of faithfulness. Or at least not of our faithfulness. It is a reward of Jesus Christ's faithfulness. Yes. The faithfulness of him who came and finished his work. But if it's based on our faithfulness in the least. Then we're all going to hell. We're all going to hell if that's true. So praise God. Those theological systems are in error. Or we're in deep trouble. Yet. Salvation does produce evidence in God's people. Yes, James 2 states, we, men, we can look, and we should look, for fruit of salvation to determine if one is a brother and sister in faith. And even there, we see so imperfectly, don't we? But God does not judge and save according to fruit, but salvation does produce fruit. What we need to see in this passage is Jesus is not comparing the man who has no works with the man who has works. Rather, he is comparing works and faith. Works of the law and dependence on God. And we'll hopefully be able to bring that out more clearly as we return to this passage next week. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for this text. So important that we understand this. Father, we don't want to be found playing the hypocrite. Such a serious thing. We see so many examples of it throughout the Bible. We we recognize even, even godly men can fall into this trap, Father, and need correction. We see this in Peter's life. And so we humbly realize that we too are susceptible. We are, we are totally able to fall into that snare ourselves. And Father, we, we don't want to end up there. And so we pray, Lord God, you would make this very clear to our hearts. That you would show us if there be any hypocrisy in us. We want our lives to honor you, Father. We, we don't want to be about seeking the praise of men. We don't want to be about looking for accolades and, and, and being seen as holy in others' eyes. No, Father, we want to be pleasing to you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would do such a work in us. That you cleanse us, that you cause us to just hold fast to Jesus Christ and, and nothing else for our salvation. We pray that you would cause our lives to bear not just leaves, but, but genuine spiritual fruit. Fruit that would be pleasing to you. Fruit that you would use to bring glory to your name in, in your body, in the church, to bring glory to your name in this world as we, as we act as, as ambassadors, as ministers of your very name. Father, do such a work in us as to cause us to bring you glory. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.